Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. Japanese generals may soon be able to launch a barrage of rockets aimed at targets across China, including Beijing. The normally reliable Kyodo News Agency, citing a Japanese government source, says that Japan is considering the acquisition of about 500 Tomahawk cruise missiles from the United States. These can be fired from the ground or submarines and have a range of up to 2,500 kilometers. China has expressed its horror at this strengthening of Japan's firepower, which it says flies in the face of the pacifist principles which were enshrined in Japan's constitution at the end of the Second World War. Japan's relationship with its large neighbor China is the focus of our discussion this week, and I'm pleased to welcome back as a guest Bill Emmett, chair of the Japan Society of the UK. I've been consulting with Bill on Asian issues for more than 20 years. We started talking when I was a rookie reporter at the BBC. He was editor of The Economist. Bill, this rivalry between China and Japan is not a new topic for us, is it? No, it's not. And it's not a new topic for China and Japan either. Um, I once, um, when I was editor of The Economist, I went to see um, the then Minister of Posts, actually, uh, in Japan, who became later Finance Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, um, called uh, Taro Aso. Uh, and I, at the time, there was some fuss, I mean, let's say a big controversy between China and Japan over the Senkaku Islands, the Daoyu to the Chinese, and about visits to the Yasukuni Shrine in Tokyo. Uh, and I said to Aso-san, how much should we be worried about this? Um, uh, should we be, you know, featuring this strongly in our coverage? And he said, ah, I said, uh, you know, I don't know why you get so excited about these arguments. China and Japan have hated each other for a thousand years. Why should it be any different today? <laughs> um, and he had a point uh, that they are long-term rivals. But of course, we know that in modern times, um, particularly in the 20th century, um, they were much more direct uh, competitors and indeed in conflict um, for much of the 20th century. Uh, and that now plays a big part in both Chinese and Japanese domestic politics too. So this is this is serious stuff. I shouldn't really be lighthearted about it. Oh, I remember Taro Aso. He was always good for an interview because he was so outspoken. Anyway, let's leave aside the nostalgia um, and let's start with this story about the Tomahawk missiles. Why does Japan think it needs them? From Japan's point of view, it is vulnerable. It is vulnerable to two countries, North Korea, a country which keeps on sending ballistic missiles over Japan's territory into the seas next to Japan and con continuously uh, threatens to, uh, to attack Japan uh, even, usually as a proxy for its conflict with the United States, but there it is. And secondly, China. Japan has had, of course, this pacifist constitution, and it has relied very much on its defense alliance with the United States ever since uh, the Second World War, and especially since uh, the alliance was strengthened in the early 1960s. But relying on the United States is not necessarily good enough, um, partly because of the swings and roundabouts of American politics, but also because China especially, but also North Korea, have become much more clear and present dangers. Japan can't afford to wait until it's been attacked and then 
rely on America to retaliate for it. It wants to deter the attacks in the in the first place. Uh, and I think that that's what these Tomahawk missiles are about. They're about acquiring a capability that can be done in the relatively near future that can deter attacks from either China or North Korea. At the same time, Japan would become more valuable as an ally for the United States, which would also be of benefit to Japan because it then might have more influence over the United States. So there's self-defense, but there's also the desire to get a bit more influence in Asia-Pacific security. It's not just missiles, is it? Japan's also been signing defense procurement deals with other NATO and G7 members. What does it hope to gain? I think that Japan hopes to gain friendships, but also gain technology so that it can, through partnerships, for example, joint development of fighter jets, uh, it can build its own defense industry. Why? Well, of course, there's an economic interest in that. But also, I think that Japan feels overly dependent on the goodwill of the United States. Um, it's entirely conceivable if you're a sitting in Japan, that at some point in the future, might not be tomorrow, might be in 10 years, might be in 20 years, an American president, let's call him Donald Trump II, could do a deal with China over the heads of, of, of Japan. Uh, and Japan could just simply be, if you like, metaphorically thrown under a bus. So Japan wants to gradually invest in its own independent capabilities. Uh, and I think that that's why it, it's seeking to diversify its, its procurement of defense equipment uh, and also, bit by bit, strengthen its own defense industry. Now, the point being made by the Chinese diplomats is that Japan has a clause in its constitution which specifically prohibits it from raising a regular army which can fight abroad. And yet, in December 2022, it adopted a new national security strategy, which includes these explicit plans to have a preemptive strike capability. It does seem like a paradox. What's your reading of the situation? Article 9 of the post-war constitution renounced the use of, of war as a tool of national policy. In other words, the use of war as an offensive capability very much focused then and in all subsequent practice on the possession as necessary of military means as a defensive capability. I think that uh, what Japan is envisaging and talking about is in line with that defensive capability. I think if you go around Southeast Asia, including many of the countries that uh, Japan invaded during the uh, Second World War um, and before the Second World War in some cases, you would not find in those countries any serious government saying that they're afraid of Japanese militarism or Japanese as it were, use of war as an offensive uh, tool. Absolutely, it's recognized that Japan's buildup of defense, and it's still at a small, a small level compared with China's, after all, is really for self-defense purposes. Japan now wishes to expand to a NATO level of spending, around 2% of GDP, from the current, depending on how you evaluate it and what you include, somewhere between one and one and a quarter percent of GDP. So it's a 
not quite doubling uh, of, of spending, but very much as in line with that uh, defensive capability. Now, you're right, you can debate about preemptive strikes, but that's about deterrence. It's only China and North Korea that make a fuss about this. When the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Wang Wenbin, responded to these changes in defence policy by Japan, he said that Japan is deviating from its commitment to maintain a respectful relationship with China. Well, in terms of diplomacy, it is a complex relationship. I know it's been icy recently, but there's also been dialogue between the Chinese and the Japanese foreign ministers, which suggests perhaps if not a permanent thaw, then at least a something of a softening of the ice. Is there a path towards better relations through dialogue? I think there is a path towards better relations, but it's also right, as you emphasize, to point out that actually relations haven't been that bad. They've been there's been more engagement, let's say in the last two or two to three years between Japan and China than there has been between the United States and China. And this is because they're such close neighbors. It's also because there are more multilateral or as people call them now, minilateral fora within which their ministers, senior ministers can meet, such as dialogues together with South Korea. Uh, and China, for example, such as meetings together um, with ASEAN, um, ASEAN plus plus as 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 they're known, such as the ASEAN defense ministers. So there are more routine uh, engagements between Japan and China than there are between the US and China. But also, I think, thanks to the deep economic integration between the two countries, there are a lot of common interests as well. So yes, there is dialogue. Yes, there are paths um, to improving that dialogue, but the ultimate restraint on it is, is the knowledge on both sides that the key defining relationship is, is that between the US and China. Um, and Japan is not going to go against the US in those relationships, and China is never going to think that, that it can pull Japan away from the US either. Now this year, 2023, Japan holds the presidency of the G7, it's not a defence alliance, it's a club of the world's major economies, but it does mean that Japan will be in particularly close contact with the United States, of which it is an ardent ally, and it'll also be working closely with Britain, France, Canada and Italy. What are Japan's objectives for its term as the G7's president? There are probably two main objectives for Japan which is, by the way, holding this G7 meeting in Hiroshima, um, which is Prime Minister Kishida's hometown, uh, Hiroshima, and that gives will give the G7 its particular characteristic. The first priority for Japan in this is, I think, to will I think be to like cement its position as a core member, indeed, one of the leaders of like the, the the Western coalition, like the, the advanced country coalition. Japan in the war in Ukraine with Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 uh, surprised some people by being a very active supporter of Western sanctions uh, against uh, Russia. Indeed, went further than on any previous occasion in taking a full part in uh, in sanctions. And then in subsequent speeches, Prime Minister Kishida described 
um, the threat of, of, of the invasion of Ukraine as being something that was very clear and present in East Asia too. The second priority is nuclear. Nuclear, thanks to it being this meeting being in Hiroshima, nuclear, thanks to this being Prime Minister Kishida's hometown, he's going to want to try to get some sort of framework agreement about the right approach to nuclear weapons, both in the light of the threats made by Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, but perhaps critically in the light of China's known nuclear buildup and the absence of any treaty-based agreements between China and the United States about nuclear weapons and their quantities, about their use, about testing, or all of those things. That is the big gap in, if you like, Indo-Pacific security, that, that the Cold War agreements between Russia and the United States that happened over nuclear have not been reproduced in, in Asia, partly because China has been a much smaller nuclear power. But I think Japan will wish to begin the process of uh, pushing towards that dialogue about nuclear stability in Asia. Well, I'm sure that the war in Ukraine will be a theme to which we keep returning in 2023. China has so far refused to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it hasn't supported Russia militarily. How does this impact Japan? Well, I think that the main impact of China's support for Russia, which was expressed through the China-Russia joint statement on February the 4th, 2022, which is very explicitly anti-Western, but also very explicitly said essentially that China and Russia were in favor of multilateral rules and institutions, but not for them, because superpowers have an exceptional role uh, in the world uh, and multilateral rules of other people. And this sent a chill around Asia and very much in Japan too about how China might think it can behave in the future um, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and of course over Taiwan. And so the big impact on Japan is that it's changed domestic politics to support the defense buildup that we've been talking about in this podcast. Um, defense and the idea of spending 2% of GDP on defense is no longer a controversial issue in Japanese politics, thanks to China's support for Russia in Ukraine. Well, thank you, Bill. I think we'll close on that sobering point. I feel that my understanding of Japan's role in the world has deepened significantly as a result of our conversation today. That was Bill Emmett, Chair of the Japan Society of the UK. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about courses and events on our web pages, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Mm -hmm.